Allie Lindenberg. And Nicole Mulkentine. And you're listening to Raw Authenticity. Thank you so much for joining us. This is a podcast where we connect with creatives who are living a life of intentionality. Transparent conversations fuel us, and we value all parts of the creative process, especially the ones that are hard to talk about. Here, you will listen to stories of people who are putting something out into the world, hoping to leave it a little bit better than they found it. So thank you for being a part of this conversation. We're glad you're here. We are so stoked today to have Brody Levin here on the podcast. This is a special treat for me personally because Brody is from my hometown outside of Cleveland, Ohio, which is so beautiful that we are able to reconnect in this platform and in this way, and I'm so grateful for that opportunity. So Brody is an adventure skier and an outdoor athlete who really has taken to the outdoors with such a purpose and such intentionality to further his own body and his own capability and better his own circumstances, but also to better the circumstances of the other inhabitants on this planet. And him sharing his story really is something special. And we are so grateful to be able to be a platform that can further share that story. Hi, Brody. Thank you so much for sitting down with us. We're really excited to hear more about your story and just learn more about you. Yeah, thanks. I'm happy to uh, be with you guys. Yeah, so Brody, um, can you just tell our listeners a little bit about what you do, who you are, how you got into it, all of it really. We want to know. Yeah, so my name is Brody Levin. I am currently in Salt Lake City where I live, Um, but I'm on the road for like 80 or 90% of the year. Uh, out of Salt Lake. I end up traveling a lot uh, because I'm a professional ski mountaineer and I travel the world climbing and skiing mountains. And that means that I don't use, I'm I'm a professional skier, but I'm kind of more a professional walker because (laughs) I walk, like I climb these mountains that takes 90% of the day and then actually skiing down them is is really, really short. So I, uh, yeah, I've traveled the world climbing and skiing mountains that do not involve the use of helicopters, chairlifts, snowmobiles, snowcats, or anything uh, except my own two legs. How did you, like, when was the first time that you were like, I'm going to do that? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to be that person. <laughs> well, I, I, after I moved to, to Utah for college, I'm from Ohio, like Nicole, so yes. I was, like, pretty stoked to, like, get out and into the mountains because I uh, just really enjoy the mountains. And so once I moved to Salt Lake, I started rock climbing pretty quickly because I moved here and whatever school starts, August or whatever, and it was mad hot, obviously. And I had never even skied out west before. I would never really been out west. And I was like, man, I'm ready to start skiing now. And it was, like, 110 degrees. <laughs> and everyone's like, oh, you are not skiing anytime soon. And I quickly started to fall in this decline of like hating salt lake i'm like this is terrible i shouldn't have moved here i should move to switzerland blah 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 and um and then someone's like yo you need to chill and try rock climbing to kind of like calm yourself and ease into living in utah and seeing what the mountains are all about and also just to wait till ski season started and i I got into climbing and i got into it really quickly um, at this like really quick trajectory where I was like getting more and more into it every day and I was doing different skills and getting all these certifications and I started guiding within the first couple of months and it was kind of like almost too quick. But, um, when winter rolled around, I was already as stoked on climbing as I was on skiing. Um, and so within like a year of skiing in Utah, I was a park skier, like a freestyle skier at the time. Cause as you do coming from the, the East coast where I was going to high school and, uh, I really wanted to combine my these newfound ski skill or these newfound climbing skills with this backcountry skiing that I had heard of. So I started like learning a little bit about backcountry skiing and avalanche safety, not as much as I should have learned. And then I quickly combined the two of them, meaning the climbing skills and the backcountry skiing skills. And that's kind of what ski mountaineering is. And uh, that snowballed. I quickly stopped skiing at resorts. I stopped using chairlifts and I started doing everything human powered because I still have this like real like intrinsic desire to like do things that are hard for me especially those that um involve my own endurance i love that so much um ali and i are like extreme amateur rock climbers um like emphasis on the amateur uh we just got our first v4s this week and we are so stoked um but i rock climbing i think when people get into it it is so addictive because it is such a signal of look at this incredible thing I can do with my body 
and it's like the problems when I'm on the ground they look so hard and then you get up there and your body just like it figures it out and it's your own like internal system doing this thing that is very like primitive to humans to just like climb something and it's such a beautiful feat to be able to use our bodies to propel ourselves like that it's so I totally agree and I have a lot of respect for you guys for being able to climb v4 because I pretty quickly (laughs) realized that I was like not very strong um physically like I was never a boulderer I was a sport climber for a very short time before I realized that I wanted to use climbing to find my way more into the mountains. Um, So I started trad climbing pretty early on and that pretty quickly led into alpine climbing and like those two styles of climbing. Like if I go cragging now, it's still like trad climbing. And if I'm going to go climbing, it's probably going to be in the mountains. And so I just never got strong. Like I just came back from the climbing gym just now and I'm like, man, sport climbing is so hard. Like pulling on plastic is like my fingers are so, and I'm used to just like, you know, hand jamming all day sort of thing. And so uh, it was like, a, it's like a really good thing for me to remember that like the type of climbing I do is not the type of climbing that uh, a lot of people become addicted to. And it's something that I need to like come back to once in a while. Like I always tell myself like, this is going to be the year of me sport climbing <laughs> and I'm going to get strong and my lower body is going to become atrophied. But in reality, like I, I like to... I'm like this multi-sport athlete who I like more than just climbing and I like more than just running and more than just skiing. So I'm always trying to have this general fitness that will allow me to do any of these things. And they don't always complement each other too well, but I think I would rather have the ability to do all of them at a mediocre level than any one of them at a super high level. Cause I don't want to sacrifice my leg strength so I can like pull harder on plastic, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, I think that's pretty important for me. I think too, like what's so fascinating about, climbing and skiing and like the adventure sports you're involved in is there is such a creative element of it because like when if someone didn't know who you were at all and you're just like I'm a climber and a skier they might have an idea of their head of like what you're doing maybe that is like typical like resort skiing or like climbing in the way that we know climbing but there's there's so many different paths within those sports that require you know you to say okay which one is the best fit for me so like yeah we both climb but it's like very different in the ways that we do like we I've never even looked at trad climbing (laughs) like I look at that and I'm like what the heck but then again like I would just assume that like you're a really good boulderer because that's just the type of climbing I know so it's just fascinating to see how many different like paths there are for those type of adventure sports that's that's such a good point because and and you know when you tell someone you're a climber like you don't Okay, they picture climbing. Are they picture Alex Honnold on El Cap, or do yeah. they picture the bouldering gym where they like to go normally? And so I think it's important to like differentiate those things because you know I say I'm a professional skier. People instantly say, uh, like, you go to the Olympics? No, mm-hmm. you don't do that. Are you a racer? No, you don't do that. Oh, you must like jump out of helicopters and film with Warren Miller, who's like this big film company that everyone seems to know of. And I'm like, no, I don't do that. And they're like, oh, so you're like a ski instructor? And I'm no. like, no, okay, all right, they're like, okay, whatever kind of skiing it is, what do you do, like, for a job? Yeah. And I'm like, no, yeah, like, professional in the sense that, you know, it's my profession. And, like, it just, and so, like, I don't mind explaining it to people, and I don't mind explaining the type of skiing that I do and the type of climbing that I do. Um, yeah, because it's, like, I think people must find it interesting. I find it interesting. I find what they do interesting. Like, do you do, like, this kind of accounting or that kind of accounting? Or do you do this kind of writing or that kind of writing? Um, you know, if you play music, people are going to ask, what kind of music do you play? And I don't think it's much different in that regard. Yeah. Do you ever feel like you have to, like, validate your job to people? Or do you think that, like, it just, like, doesn't bother you when people don't get it? Yeah. I mean, all the time. I don't feel like a need to. But I think I think it helps. Our gener- I mean, our generation so good at, like, not having traditional jobs and following these societal norms. And it maybe other generations are, too. But this is what's in front of me right now. And I'm like, I, I don't even know any friends that have nine to five jobs. And, and I think that's really cool and really inspiring for me. And, and thus I like to explain it to people usually cause they want to know, they want to know like, so how can you actually make a living doing that? <laughs> and, and I have no problem explaining cause it's, it's cool to me. And I'm like, this is, of course I want to talk about it. Like this is, I'm able to live my dream right now. Like, that's huge for me. Like I can do what I sitting in Chesterland, Ohio, only dreamed of saying, I want to be a pro skier one day. 
and this is not the type of pro skier I dreamed of, mm-hmm. but um, the title's the same. Yeah. There was, uh, Allie was just telling me about it, um, Aaron Sullivan, who's Aaron Outdoors. She, I know Aaron well. Uh, she's so cool. Um, mm-hmm. We had interviewed her on the podcast before, and she's just, like, so authentic and so great with that question. And she had just uh, done one of her vlogs uh, recently where somebody had sent in a question that was about, like, how do I do nothing and, like, just do the things I want and get paid for it? And she was like, well, I don't know. I couldn't tell you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She's like, I still work. She's like, I have a job. <laughs> right. She's like, and I mean, like, it's, it's important to see, I think, behind the, like, you know, Erin was right here on this couch last week and just working her butt off. Yeah. Erin's like, so like, because I like to joke that I don't have a job, you know, like, it's like all of us kind of are like, yeah, like what's work, you know, but like we all work mad hard and it's six 30 right now. And I'll be working till midnight tonight. And that, you know, I just got done training and then I'm going to do a little more training when we get done. And then I'm going to start answering emails and then I have to work on this script and like those kind of things. And it, and it doesn't stop, you know? Um, so it's definitely not this glamorous life that I think, especially in the skiing world, it likes to be portrayed maybe in like the musician world as well, where it's just kind of like this whimsical, like all I do is ski for six months a year and get flown around in helicopters and then I like party real hard. And then I try to wake up the next morning to like do it again the next day. And then for other six months a year, I like to go surfing. And like, that's not my life at all. Mm-hmm. And that's, um, and I wouldn't want it to be, you know, like I'm, I'm college educated. I, I like get a lot of stimulation from like intellectual things. I like to deal with the business side of having my own business. Like I'm Brody Levin Incorporated. And I love to deal with the business of that. And I find it um, I find it stimulating and I find it important for me to do something other than just be a body being tossed around in the mountains, like trying to hone my fitness to the best of my abilities or trying to like jump off the biggest cliffs. I need to be using my brain. And uh, whether that means I get hurt one day and I need to go back to writing more or whatever it is, um, it's important for me to to be a person and not just like a body. Yeah, and also for you, I know that the environment is something really important to you. And so I feel like for that, it's more than just like being in the mountains. It's also then like, how do I take those experiences in the mountains and how do I implement them to actually create tangible change? Um, And I think that's so important in whatever we do. Um, I just had a conversation with somebody the other day um, about their yoga practice and how a lot of people will go to um, foreign countries to, they'll go to, um, like Bali or somewhere um, in Indonesia and they will go and they'll get their yoga certification and then they'll stay there instead of coming back and teaching. And he's like, that's like great because those people just like love that area and they love that energy and that vibe. But he was like, the people that really need to hear about that experience in Bali are the things that you learned are the people back here who don't have those the access to being able to experience that. And so for him, he was like, my yoga practice is so sacred to me and I want to make sure that I'm practicing it with the people that need it the most. And so he's like, I know that like I'll never leave the communities that I think need it the most. Like I don't want to go to a place that's oversaturated with it. And I feel like that kind of comes into this same situation too where you can't just stay in the mountains all the time. You have to come back and you have to say like, here's the things that I saw, here's the things that I did, and here's why those things are also important and why you need to hear them too. And I think it's subjective as far as what communities need to hear it the most. Yes. Like maybe, maybe I think, or maybe, you know, I think that is subjective, but what I think is cool is that you're right, that you do need to be able to come out of the mountains at some point and share, like translate what you've experienced in a way that's relatable because what I do in the mountains is not relatable right? Like my life is on the line at any given time. I could die in a thousand ways at any given time. I'm pushing my body to the absolute limit that I possibly can. I spend years planning these expeditions where I spend weeks climbing a mountain and then spend minutes skiing down it. Like all of these things are everyone's like, what? Like, why would you do that? So it's very important to me to be able to translate these into experiences that are, um, like compelling narratives for people. Like they're not necessarily like, oh yeah, I'm gonna go out and go on an expedition now. But maybe they're like, oh, 
I've been wanting to make this cutting board out of this chunk of wood that I've had in my garage for a month. And now I'm like found this little little bit of inspiration to go ahead and do that. Or, you know, I've been wanting to program this computer forever. Or I want to I want to try a kickflip on my skateboard or I want to go skiing for the very first time, you know, whatever it is. Um, I think I'm hopefully able to tell these stories that get people to do things that are challenging for them because I think doing things that are hard for you is good for you. And I think if everyone can incorporate that a little bit into our life, into their lives, um, the world would benefit from people like understanding the growth that you get from challenging yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Also, so incredible of you making that digestible for people because I feel like it would be really easy to look at your life and make excuses and be like, okay, well, I'm never going to like climb mountains and ski down them. That's insane. Like, that's so cool he does that, but like, I'm not going to do that and kind of just brush it off as like, there's no lesson to learn in that. But I love what you said that like, doing hard things is good for you sometimes and like you can apply that in your life in some way even if it's not planning an expedition to go climb a mountain but it kind of holds responsibility for the person listening to the story of like how can I make myself better from from knowing this person and knowing this story yeah because for me it's not about climbing and skiing mountains right it's about like this the growth that I get from it and the growth that I'm able to hopefully offer other people from it and and people, I'm not like some super freak, mega genetically gifted athlete, right? Like <laughs> I'm a 29-year-old guy from Ohio who like <laughs> likes to go in the mountains most days because I've like created this life around living five miles away from them. I also think that um, professional athletes and just like testing physical fitness really helps with at least my own like mental fitness. Not that I'm a professional athlete, but I know that when I think about physical tests I've given myself in the past it like makes me feel more mentally capable so like for example two years ago I um was hiking part of the Inca trail with um this class at my school and I like contracted a really bad stomach infection um and I was like in the middle of this trail like and had to like hike out 10 miles while being like so incredibly ill that I like could barely hold myself up and like after doing that I just was like okay I could probably do anything <laughs> like I like like could pro like I just testing myself physically in that way made any like mental or like challenge moving forward just that much easier because I was like okay well I did that and I wasn't expecting that to happen or to be able to to do that and like so doing these like incredible feats with your body at least for me like helps me mentally just ground myself and have perspective of like we can do so much more than we think we can like when we set our minds to those things um and that was just like an anecdote I wanted to share no and maybe that goes both ways maybe you, when you set your mind to things you can do things physically that you wouldn't have expected to be able to do I think it like it goes in both ways and I think in order to really succeed in like any creative or like physical pursuit, you need to kind of be as on point as possible in both of those in order to like have your mind and body working in harmony to allow you to achieve whatever you're trying to achieve. Yeah, absolutely. So we, um, we had Tyna kind of touched on before how, um, people have this image of like what professional athletes do and like what their lives look like um and I think that part of that probably comes from social media because social media is this highlight reel of people's lives and so it's really easy to assume that that is the entire life um how do you use your social media as a platform to really like convey these things that we've been discussing yeah, I mean, social media, I, I kind of came into the world of being a professional athlete just as social media was taking off. And I like, for reference, I was in college from 2006 to 2010. I graduated with like, you know, two majors and and I was able to do, I was student body president at my university. Like I was able to do all these things with no social media. And this wasn't like that long ago. Like I was still the only kid in school without Facebook, you know? <laughs> and I was just, I was very anti-social media because I think I was pretty self-centered right like no like i'm in college i don't need this what i don't need to like project anything or receive anything i'm just trying to live my life and like i like this i like personal interaction i don't like this and that's still the case for me 
insofar as I still like personal interaction and I still hate screens of any type. But um, social media is part of being any sort of public figure now, obviously. And I decided to adopt it really early on because I knew I wasn't the best skier in the world, but I knew if I could have something else to offer to bring value to companies that I worked with, um, they'd be more inclined to work with me. And I decided social media was some was going somewhere um, mm-hmm. because it had already succeeded so much in the like in, in culturally, but it wasn't yet a huge part of business practice. And I adopted it pretty early on in, in as in the world of being an athlete. And I started incorporating it into my contracts pretty early on. And then within a couple of years, I realized I had I had worked so hard to develop this platform, this like this this base of fans and followers. And you know, I had a hundred thousand people following what I did all the time, and I thought it was so cool. And then I like, and then it was again, it was a kind of shaking myself and being like, hang on, this is so much about you, 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 Brody. Maybe you need to like chill out and think like, what can you project and also receive and have like this two way conversation with people because. Ski, let's say, let's say like action sports media in the past was about magazines and like what could you what magazine could you get a shot in or like what DVD could you get a clip in um, that like showed you being super rad and doing the gnarliest stuff <laughs> and I'm like hold on what's different about social media is that it's this two way conversation and so I certainly decided early on to use it to engage in a two way street. Um, oh, I guess what's cool about social media is that it's more than two way, right? It's like every which way everybody can be, can be giving their two cents and that doesn't bother me. It's like something I've really chosen to embrace and something that I love. Um, so I realized, okay, how can I engage with followers in a many way conversation in a way that's, that's positive and not just with my followers, but like, I'm a huge fan of all the skiers and climbers and runners and also of all the artists and photographers and videographers and musicians. Right. And like, how can I, how can I work with them in such a way that like is positive for humankind. Right. And, um, I, I realized that like the things I really care about, um, in my brand are being the best athlete I can be. Yes. And bringing value to the brands that I work with as sponsors. Right. But I care about more than that just as a person, right? I care about like gender equality in the workplace and LGBTQ like rights and, and where like the, the polyester in my jacket is coming from. And so what I decided to kind of focus on, cause I think like anything, you can't be too, like you can't go too many different ways, right? So in order to distill what I cared about, I decided to talk about uh, avalanche education and snow safety because in my world, like I'm, I'm indirectly encouraging people to go out there and get rad in the back country where there's no avalanche control and you're going to die if you screw up. So I find it totally my responsibility to, to help guide them to the resources to learn. So I do a lot of volunteering with the, with the avalanche centers and teaching courses and giving talks and those kind of things, um, with public land activism. So, uh, especially currently and like all the current, especially all the current public lands issues that we're dealing with, um, I like to be pretty outspoken about them and the importance of public lands because a that directs the or that directly affects the bottom lines of the brands that I work with, but b that like directly affects the lives of you and I. And um, that's something that I couldn't just like stand idle by. It was not something that came naturally to me. It was something I had to like learn to care about. But once I learned to care about it, it was like it's on. Like how could I ever ignore this? And then c or three. I don't know if I'm doing numbers or letters. Um, <laughs> The, the last thing is, uh, and the most prevalent in like my branding is an environmental awareness um, and like taking care of where we live. And so I decided to to use social media as, because I realized maybe my time is best spent talking to the tens or hundreds of thousands of people that listen to me via social media and talking with them. And it would be like writing a single letter to a single editor at a single magazine what 2,000 people are gonna read. Um, and so I've tried to find this happy balance um, between being like an active and engaged citizen and being this voice that can that can be received by a lot of people and hopefully kind of exponentially magnify um, the message that I'm trying to to put out there. So like for tomorrow tomorrow night, for example, I'm going to be going um, Rocky Mountain Power is like our power utility in Salt Lake City, right? And they have the monopoly over providing power for all of our houses. And they are trying to raise rates on rooftop solar, making it like prohibitively expensive 
to have rooftop solar because like they want your money. They don't want your money to come from the sky, you know? And so they're having, the government's having like a public comment period tomorrow. And so, okay, I think like me as a concerned citizen who's looking to buy a house, who is going to put solar on it right away, I should go and speak out because I don't want that solar to become prohibitively expensive really quickly. So that's me as a single person. But me as someone who uses social media a lot is going to live stream the entire thing to a lot of people through one of these nonprofit organizations that I work with um, to try to get more people both informed, educated, and hopefully activate more people on this single issue because it's not something that my one voice, I think if I can magnify that and expand on that, um, it's not something I want to do alone. And I think it's something that a lot of people care about. And if they're sitting in front of their computer instead of being at the meeting, that's fine because there's ways to get involved. But social media is, is I use this platform that I've created to hopefully um, inspire some good. Yeah, I admire that so greatly in the way that you do use your social media. Um, and I think that all of us, whether you have 100 followers, if you have 100,000 followers, it is the conscious decision. Am I going to put uh, content out into the world that, like, is going to impact people and to, like, have some type of positive good? And I think there's so much out in social media, especially in out in the internet, that just, like, it is just stuff. Like, it's just stuff floating around there. It's just, like, pretty pictures and, like, those have a place, too. But to really hone in and say, like, why am I doing this thing that I do? Like, why do I post these things? Why do I post these pictures, write these words? And how is that actually going to directly impact people? Um, And I feel like that's something that I, like, personally have tried to do with my social media. And that's, like, has a much smaller pool of influence. But, like, just as human beings, I think that's our responsibility. And that's how social media can be harnessed for good. And I feel like so many people reject social media. And I don't think that that's the answer. Maybe a lot of people reject it, like in Portland, but here, everyone <laughs> eats it. <laughs> no, I, I think I, you're, you're totally right. And it's unfortunate how much fluff is out there. But I think having that much fluff allows like the quality content with good messaging to like shine that Shut much up. brighter. Mm-hmm. Um, because everything else is just like, you know, cast in shadows and, and it's easy for me to ignore that stuff. Like those aren't the people I'm following on social media. I get like such quality inspiration and education out of like browsing my social media. I'm like, this is rad. Like this is like where I'm getting what I know now. And this is so cool. And it's because like these friends of mine are the most inspiring people on the planet. And maybe they only have like 1 million followers instead of like 20 million followers. (laughs) But I mean, Hey, like, they're spreading the good word pretty widely, and I uh, I have a lot of respect for that. I also have a lot of respect for you kind of changing your mind on social media. So like you said, in college, you are like, eh, like, kind of not into that. But you, like, recognize that you were becoming a public figure, and there's responsibility in that and stepping into that space of, like, holy crap, like, I can influence people. Like, people are listening to me, and so I'm going to stand by my values and for things I believe in and actually give something, you know, say something that's worth listening to in the sense that it empowers other people to amplify their own voices as well. And I think that's really incredible that you were able to reflect and just say, okay, I didn't like it before, but like, I'm going to use it now because I know I can use it for good. And I don't know if I, I've like frequently on the record been like, if it wasn't, if I wasn't doing it for professional reasons, I would not engage in social media. Like it is not my idea of a good time looking at my cell phone screen, like while I'm rock climbing. But I, I'm starting to question that because I do get a lot of inspiration from it. Like when I see something, let's go as simple as like athletically, I'll see someone has run a mountain in a time much faster than I've run that mountain. I can be like, oh God, I need to train harder. Like this is like this is good for me. This isn't good for me so I can post my faster time. This is good for me because I can see how much better I can be. Um, and, and something a little more complicated, like maybe I wouldn't know the right messaging to take to this rooftop solar hearing tomorrow if I wasn't seeing like these comments that people are posting about it and like their, their anecdotal experiences, right? And so it, I'm like kind of on the fence about it. And then also because if I didn't need to do it professionally, so let's say I had this same following and I wasn't a professional athlete, like would I just take it for granted and be like, here's a picture of me in a bikini or whatever, you know, or would I, or I, hope. I like, 
still choose <laughs> or would I like still choose to use it in a positive way? And that's something I've started to, to fluctuate on a little bit more. I wish there was a way to engage with it that wasn't staring at my phone because yeah. I think I and so many of us that use social media professionally get so sick of looking at our phones. Um, and I think that's something like some tech guy or something needs to look at because I would <laughs> love to not have to use my phone, but still be able to like uh, put content out there and engage with, with other people. We really believe at Raw that intention is kind of the base of everything we do and that creativity itself is rooted in intention. And whether you know, you're a painter or a traditional artist, a climber, that we're kind of living from these intentions that we make for ourselves. Um, and so we're wondering what, what, like if you have an intention right now that you've currently set for yourself. I, maybe it's twofold. Maybe it's that I am trying to be the best athlete that I can be, but I feel like that's kind of more a silent thing that I'm just doing almost for myself. Um, because I want to be able to climb bigger mountains and I want to do so faster. And that's where I find a lot of like my motivation and inspiration is athletically. But a, a big intention for me right now perhaps is just trying to talk less about myself and maybe more about my experiences and how they're relatable to people and the ways in which people can use my experiences to derive their own inspiration, their own stories, their own motivation to do something that's hard for them. Or maybe it's maybe it's different. Maybe they want to say like, hey, I never want to be a skier. Or hey, I never want to care that much about fitness. Or hey, I don't care about the environment. Whatever it is, hopefully it's getting people thinking. Um, and I think I can be intent on, on getting people thinking. And hopefully it's, you know, for the good of the environment and for the good of our world but if it's not, at least they think a little bit. Yeah, I feel like that like definitely comes into what we have here as our intention with Raw. Um, and with Raw, we have this intention that creativity is something that exists within all of us and not everybody sees themselves as a creative, but like we so wholeheartedly believe that really all of us are and no matter what we are doing, we are creatives and we are putting ourselves out there into this world and doing and being and in that process that requires vulnerability and showing up and continuing to show up. And so we just like our intention is just like shedding light on those people who are showing up authentically so that others can then like see that within themselves and be inspired to maybe show up a little more authentically themselves tomorrow. And mm. I think that setting intentions can be so powerful for ourselves because it is this baseline and reminder of like, why do I do this thing that I do every day? And like, am I doing that? There's this Dallas Clayton um, drawing that he has that it's like three different lines and it's like, what are the things that you love? Like now compare it to what the things that you do adjust accordingly. And I feel mm. like that is like with intent as well. It's like, what are my intentions? What am I actually doing? compare, adjust. When you mentioned that vulnerability, I, I kind of got my brain going. I, I wonder if one reason that I'm so involved in social media and so incredibly transparent is to, is to make my, to make myself appear as vulnerable as I really am by being transparent. I, I don't have many social media haters, for example, <laughs> but this week some dude started giving me a hard time in like a very PG way, but he was pretty much like, do you ever do anything and not post it on social media? And I'm like, Ooh, you really got me there. And like, <laughs> and like, a yes, B not too much. And I think the reason is there to make, because I think if you see how real and human someone is that you're maybe getting some inspiration from, it's a little easier to relate that to yourself. And thus, if someone is seeing the fact that like, man, today I am really, really low on energy, but I'm still going to ride my bike to the trailhead and go for a run and ride my bike back. Or today I've been staring at my computer for 14 hours. I need to just like 
walk to the farmer's market and breathe some fresh air. And whatever it is, I think it's showing people that, um, that being transparent can hopefully add to this like dose of inspiration. Um, and whether or not that's a creative thing, like I, I don't necessarily think of myself as a creative, but at all, but when, so for example, I just went to, I just went on an expedition to Africa to climb and ski the last remaining glacier on the continent, which sits on the third highest peak, which is located on the border of the Congo and Uganda. And like, it took me flying to Africa, flying to Uganda, hiking a week through the jungle, carrying skis with 20 porters, climbing this glacier that's like the size of Alpine Valley, like our small <laughs> hill at home, like half that size um, in Ohio, and then hiking back out through the jungle. And like that was, I don't know if that's like a creative idea, but it's something that I wanted to, to experience firsthand because the glacier is going to be gone within our lifetime. And on the same token, like me experiencing that by myself is going to be, it's going to allow me to tell the story of firsthand experiences of climate change better. And by me telling the story of firsthand experiences of climate change better, hopefully that will then inspire solutions that maybe some nine-year-old in science class right now is thinking up or maybe someone sitting at the ballot on November 7th of this year will be considering when they're like making their vote. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I really like the point you made about like human, like that social media can be humanizing because I think social media at its best can be humanizing and at its worst is dehumanizing because when it's just a highlight reel, it paints the human experience as like only joy and that's not how the human experience actually is. It's not just joy, it's pain, suffering, and so much in between. And by using social media for good, by being really transparent and showing everything, you are humanizing yourself and showing people that, like, you are a person from Ohio that is, like, living this <laughs> life and that you can, too, like, if you step into that. And so I just, I thought that was a really, like, good way of putting it. A few years ago, I went through this super gnarly breakup and it was like coming through on my social media. Like he got super emo all of a sudden, but at the same time it got really real. Right. And it got like emo to the point where my sponsors were like, Hey, like, uh, like no. maybe you're scaring people away. And I'm like, to be honest, guys, I've had the highest engagement of my life, my social media life because of this like real and rawness that I've been portraying. And since then it's never gotten less raw. Like, yes, it's, it's a highlight reel of photos, but as far as my experiences, it's like, oh, look at me on top of this pretty mountain. I was crying at the bottom of it. <laughs> or, or like, oh, look, we went camping because, you know, I had a flood in my house last night. And um, these things haven't really stopped. And, and I think I'm seeing that, like, it's becoming pervasive. Like, everyone's being super real. It's not like I don't see it much anymore as just like a highlight reel of, like, fluff the people that I'm choosing to follow and maybe it's more like, uh, like self-selected, like maybe it's the people that I'm choosing, but it's just like so inspiring. It's, it's awesome. At least also for myself, if I'm not putting out thing, I'm like a vulnerability junkie. Like I like get a high off of being vulnerable with people. And because I feel like that prompts like those me too moments and that's where human connection begins for me. But if I also know that, my relationship with myself, if I'm not being vulnerable and real, if I'm just, like, making it seem like things are all fun and dandy when they're, like, probably not, uh, I go nuts. So I, like, turn into this, like, anxious butterfly because I'm, like, oh, no, I'm writing this story here, but my life is not actually that. And then, like, I have these inconsistencies. And so I know that to take care of myself best – I have to be honest in everything that I put out there and everything has to come from this like real place of vulnerability. Otherwise my relationship with myself will get pretty weird, pretty fast. And I think we're seeing that people are putting out what they want to receive. Yeah. It's like, you know, be the change you want to see in the world sort of thing. Like people are like doing and portraying themselves in such a way that they would want to receive someone else's portrayal. And that is something that's, that's very real. Absolutely. I'm going to let you ask this next question because you wrote it. And okay, yeah. I'm really excited about, I'm this. Really excited about this question. <laughs> um, so, obviously, being an adventure athlete, just like there's so much inherent risk with that. 
Um, and so we are obsessed with Meru. Like, it's our favorite documentary. We just love it so much. And in Meru, um, I love the part where, I mean, it's also sad, though. You'll but, never uh, guess who I was climbing with this weekend, then. Jimmy, Jimmy Chin. Chin. Conrad Aker? Oh, other one. Renan! Renan? Okay, <laughs> that actually just, like, my heart feels more whole. Uh, Renan is such an amazing artist. Also, the feat of physical strength in Meru. I am like cry every time. I know. And also because, like, I feel like before the film, he was, like, <laughs> not as famous as the other two. But then in that film, I feel like he became the real star. And it's, like, the underdog. But, uh. I, I love how into it you guys are. That's awesome. Yeah, if you're listening to this podcast and you haven't seen Meru, you should probably just stop listening and go do that right now. <laughs> yeah, I would highly encourage it because we are obsessed. Um, it's like my first date movie. It, like It's like my go-to because I'm like, if you don't like this, uh, it's probably not going to work out for us. <laughs> it's probably not going to go any further. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but the reason I brought up Meru was because um, in part of it, so Jimmy Chan is talking about how his mother – um, keeps telling him that he can't die before she dies. Um, and so he keeps that in mind in all of his trips. And then and she dies, unfortunately. Um, and then he was like, and then I realized, like, there's nothing stopping me on my trips now besides myself. Like, my mom's not my my point check for my safety any longer. Um, and so he then kind of had to manage that own that risk level by himself and so I just wanted to know how do you mentally navigate the inherent risk that accompanies your job yeah that's those guys explained it really well in the film I think and it's it's not so different um for me I I do expose myself to risk on a nearly daily basis um, whether it's climbing or skiing or a lot of the type of running I do is also like, don't fall or you're dead. And that exposing myself to death is the way that I feel most alive. That adrenaline is like something that I live for. And it's something that for me is not like this elevated heart rate freaking out. I'm like beating death by conquering this mountain. Instead, for me, it's this like very like peaceful, calming experience when I just know I can't screw up right now. And it's awesome because there's no other elements here except like me and the mountain. And if anything's going to go wrong, I can only blame myself. And in that regard, like that's something I keep in mind every day when I go out. And I don't go out to like be death defying on a daily basis. I go out because it's how I feel alive. And maybe that's like elevating my heart rate by pushing really hard in the mountains. Maybe it is just going out for 24 hours without sleeping or stopping and just moving, moving, moving. Maybe it's trying to ski something that no one's ever skied before. Whatever it is, um, I find this inspiration and then I consider the risks associated with it. Uh, It's like the capital U, capital C, ultimate consequence of dying is something that's always present. And, you know, I, I have a family and... I am very aware of how much my parents care about me, and they're also very aware of the risks associated with with what I like to do. Um, I don't feel pressured from my sponsors at all. I don't feel pressure from the industry. My my pressure comes like from within for sure. Could I just ski on the green circles at the ski res- green squares green circles at the ski resorts for the rest of my life? And somehow, like, make a job out of it, maybe. But that's not, that's not like, what makes me feel alive. Um, I don't spend time sitting in traffic on a commute where I'd be exposed to death. I don't spend time, like, sitting on a couch eating Cheetos being exposed to death. Um, I spend my time in the mountains. And I have recently had this, this reckoning with my own mortality as I've had more and more friends pass away in the mountains. I've been, I've been really lucky to not know a ton of them. You know, I have so many friends that are like, I lost count at 30 and I'm like, Jesus, that is just fortunately not the case for me. Um, but I've had enough friends where it's like given me, including like some of my like huge role models that it's, that has given me a dose of, of reality to the point where I have had to be like, okay, this could kill me doing what I like to do. And can I accept that and still go out on a daily basis? Yes. Am I out there thinking this could kill me? This could kill me. This could kill me. No. 
I'm out there making the most like informed, safest, and educated decisions I can make given the situation. And frequently the situation is one that is extremely dangerous. But like you can call it professional development or whatever, but I'm constantly doing these wilderness first aid classes and avalanche education classes and assessing the snowpack for avalanche uh, danger and, and looking around for rock fall or serac fall or crevasses or whatever I'm dealing with that are these objective hazards because those are the things that you can just get unlucky and they can smoke you. Like it's that easy. And those are risks that I'm willing to take. Do I choose my climbing routes and my skiing routes accordingly? Trying to keep that risk tolerance in check? Yes. More importantly, do I find partners that'll help me keep that risk tolerance in check? For sure. Because I tend to have a higher risk tolerance than a lot of other people, for sure. And, and by that I mean I tend to be more comfortable exposing myself to a higher chance of accident and frequently, normally accident means death in these situations than a lot of my partners do. And it's just like a statistic at some point where if you spend enough time out there, something's gonna happen to you, whether you get buried in an avalanche or thrown off a cliff or whatever it is. So I, I try to choose partners that'll help me keep that in check, but at the same time, if I wanna do progressive ski mountaineering and, and high level climbing, I need to have partners that are more on my risk tolerance level. Um, and I think where it gets dangerous is having two people or a, a team that all have risk tolerances that are like through the roof because that's when good judgment gets thrown out the window and um, ambition becomes too bold. I, and that's not something I'm stoked to do. Yeah. Uh, it's really fascinating for me to listen to you answer this question. And I'm so grateful you've done it so thoughtfully because I feel like a lot of the times with it, Venture sports for people who aren't in it and don't know much about it. Just look at people like yourself who do these really high risk adventures. Are like, oh, they're just crazy. Like they don't even think about like adrenaline fact, junkies. Yeah, yeah, like they're just all after the chase. Like they don't think about like how they could die and like the people they're leaving behind. And it's like, no, like I'm pretty sure that like some of them probably do. And so it's it's really incredible to to listen to you explain that and reckon your own mortality and the people you love and in this life you're living and just say like these are things I think about. It's not just, you know, I feel alive, so I'm going to do this and like, just not think about it at all. Like you do think about it. And that, that I think is important for people to understand. Yeah. And I think thinking about it goes both ways, you know, like Jimmy, like you said, he actually increased his risk factor by thinking about it um, or his risk tolerance by thinking about it. I, I think a lot of people decrease their risk tolerance when life dictates. So, you know, they have a family of their own, or they, they have so many things in their life that like, oh God, this is gonna be a mess if I die or whatever. I, I'm at this point where I'm a minimalist. I don't own many things. I'm young and fit and strong and like really motivated. Um, I have a good group of partners that I can like call upon for specific objectives. Um, my parents completely understand what I do and they want me to feel alive and happy. And I make decisions accordingly. At the same time, I've been really fortunate to, to have no major accidents in the mountains. I've never dug someone's head out of an avalanche, but I go backcountry skiing hundreds of days every year. I've I've never you know watched someone, whatever. I don't even want to think about it. But like I, I've just been so thoughtful in the decisions that I've made. Um, and I think most people are like that. It's it's unfortunate that a lot of what get, used to get glorified was the adrenaline junkie risk taker, jump off the biggest cliff, climb the highest wall without a rope, do whatever. Those things aren't as popular anymore. You see Alex Honnold free soloing El Cap, and like, what is he talking about? He's talking about thoughtful decision-making and how incredibly comfortable he feels up there before he would even consider doing that. And that's something that like I can't get enough of. And I think the general public is starting to appreciate that. Like the whole, we call it ski porn, like just doing the raddest stuff or, or climbing porn or whatever like that. I think that phase is finally passed and people, the same goes for social media. They like to receive something a little more meaningful. And um, our evaluation of risk is I think part of that process now. Um, so we always ask everybody that we interview this question, um, and I think that these kind of like flow into one another. Uh, so raw authenticity is, it's divided between two words of raw and authenticity. Um, and so we think that it's so important to really think about like, when do we feel the most raw? 
so in your life, um, in climbing, but also just like in life in general, um, and skiing, uh, when do you feel the most raw? This is actually pretty easy for me. Like being exposed in the elements, I particularly think like wind in my face with like my jacket zipped all the way up, um, with some sort of exposure, most likely like a cliff off one side or whatever and, and skis on my back and whatever it is, ice axes in my hand and like tied to one of my best friends by a rope. Um, those are the experiences that I not only live for, but, um, they're like the realest, rawest things that I've ever experienced in my life. And they're completely what I search for on a very regular basis. I, uh, uh, yeah, I, I just can't get enough of it right now. And um, maybe that'll change over time. But I think like living like the truest version of myself, which for me is one that's pushing myself pretty hard while making like thoughtful decisions, uh, is raw. I love it. I love it. Yeah, it's like so clear to see that you are living like <laughs> in that raw state. You're alive. <laughs> you are alive. That is true. <laughs> Um, so Brody, this has been really awesome. And I think when people listen, they're going to be like, holy crap, like, where can we find out about him? So where can people find your work slash you? Like, do you want to share your website or social media or any of that? Hopefully it's not too hard to find what I'm doing. Otherwise I'm a failure of professional athlete. Um, <laughs> Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Brody Levin. Uh, my website's Brody That's like L E V E N. Um, I do like upload all my workouts to Strava and I try to put as much out there as possible. I just worked on a film last year called Pedal to Peaks. That's on pedaltopeaks.com. I'm working on three films right now and uh, I do expeditions and trips year round. So um, content is on a pretty regular basis and it's not always just about me, 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 me. It's about a variety of other people and characters and, and artists and athletes and these beautiful, incredibly endangered, endangered places around the world. Well, we are so grateful to have gotten to talk to you. Um, I have enjoyed this conversation immensely. Yeah. I have too. Thanks so much for having me, guys. Thank you for listening to Rothenticity today. We had a great time making this episode and hope you enjoyed listening to it. If you want to learn more about us, you can find us at www.rothenticity.com or on Instagram and Facebook at Rothenticity. If you love this episode, you should subscribe to us on iTunes or SoundCloud. We also want to give a huge shout out to Rachel Clevenger. That rocking music you heard at the beginning was beautifully composed by her. We'll see you next week when we sit down with another incredible creative.